This is the soundtrack series. This is the soundtrack series. I'm Dana Rossi. So, a quick thing. This is the last episode of the season. I had I had a last minute idea to to do seasons now with this podcast and so so this is the last episode of the season. I'm taking the summer off. Uh though not really taking the summer off. Doing some more interviews. I don't want to give away too much, but let's just say I'm thinking of something jazzy for when we come back in fall. Anyway, that's that. This episode is me talking to Mo Daviau, who is the incredible author of the fabulous book, Every Anxious Wave, Music Meets Time Travel Meets Everything Seven-Year-Old Me and 38-Year-Old Me Ever Wanted. So we talk about the book, and if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, So read it and then listen to this, or don't and listen to this and get real curious. We talk about the book. We talk about the concert we'd want to go back to see if we could. We talk about what moment in life we'd go back and change or not change if we could. And duh, we talk about 120 minutes. What was the the origin idea for this story? Like, what was the thing that you kind of started with and then based everything else on? Well, I started this book in 2010 and it was one night when I was sitting at home feeling like a giant loser uh, and I had this thought to myself that if I just cranked up the song Sally Wants by the band Henry's Dress that I would warp the time-space continuum and I would end up back in 1995 and I would make completely different life choices that would not lead me to this moment of uh, existential despair. So uh, not that my life was so horrible. It wasn't. It was just like, you know, having trouble finding a job I liked and wasn't the, you know, published author I am right now. Um, Hey. Hey. So uh, that's where that came from. It was just sort of one night of being angry at myself. That's where that's how Carl Bender got born. Wow. And so he's more you than uh, than Lena. Oh, yeah. Why did you choose to go with a, a male protagonist then? I, I had ambitions of writing the great feminist novel from a male first-person perspective. Yeah. I want there to be more men like Carl in the world, so I, I, I make them up. Um, and also <laughs> sort of this, yeah, and also there's sort of this idea, like, I didn't feel comfortable writing a female character who was kind of a sad sack, and I don't, know, I don't really know that women process those feelings in that way either. I don't. None of my female friends really do. It seems sort of like a male experience way of dealing with life's disappointments. Men can be kind of schlubby and, and bum, but women are either angry or forced or shamed into overcompensating.
was the what you said before about uh, that you were just kind of home one night and it was 1995 and or no it was and you were wishing you could go back to 1995 yeah. and this one particular song and everything uh, mm-hmm. is that then what made you go with like well the wormhole should take you back to see concerts to use that to use music as in that way well that comes from this old like icebreaker question I used to ask people at bars and parties which was if you could go back in time and see any rock concert, what would you choose? Which seemed to be a little bit more of an interesting question than, so what kind of music do you like? Yeah, oh, it is. Um, so I would ask people that, and that was just sort of my go-to character assessment, icebreaker, let's have a conversation at a party question. Would you, if you heard an answer you didn't like, would you, like it, when you would ask that question? I've heard a lot of answers to that question now. People have told me their concerts that they would choose since the book came out. I've heard the answer to their question, that question a lot. (laughs) I know. I'm sure that, yeah, it's like everybody, I'm sure when they write a book about a particular subject opens themselves up to a very particular question, something having to do with that. And that's just going to be the thing you hear for the rest of your life now. Yeah. Everyone's like Pink Floyd. That's, that's good. That's nice. Um, I mean, what are yours? Mine, mine are, main one would be to be at the, first ever REM show at the church in 1980 in Athens, Georgia. Wow. Or Michael Stipe repeatedly, you were, couldn't really hear him saying or understand what he was saying because he was so like shy and muffled. Um, I would have loved to have been at that one. I was four when that concert happened and I didn't live in Georgia and even if we did, I don't think my mom would have been cool enough to take me. I am a huge fan of an artist from Austin named David Garza. Do you know David? He no. Is a, he is a beautiful so. man. I adore him. Um, many years ago, I was at one of his shows. I've seen him play like at least 100 times. He had a standing gig every week at Carmel yeah. Club for a long time. I would go every week. Um, and one of those times, uh, he saw me and he knew who I was. I stick out in a crowd. He knew me as his groupie girl. So he came off stage and he's all sweaty from playing and he had a drink in his hand. He's like, hey, girl, good to see you. And he gave me a kiss and like left sweat on my face (laughs) and i was standing there like swooning and gobsmacked like oh my god um religious experience so i would go back in time just basically you know rewind and and relive david sweaty kissing my face oh my god that was was super dreamy dana oh my god (laughs) i don't have anything like that i went to see uh I, I actually went to uh, Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, and the Jim Rose Circus. Oh, wow. Jim in, Ro- cool. yeah, yeah. In December of 94. And I was I was 16. And nobody knew who Marilyn Manson was yet. That was the thing. Is Everybody was like, like he's saying shit on stage about wanting to like, you know, ha- have sex with some 14-year-old boy that was backstage or something like that. And everybody's like, do we clap for this? Like, nobody had any clue what was going on. Uh, and... <laughs> But what was so weird is that, like, outside, just, like, in the, I don't want to say lobby, I mean, this is, like, the some sports arena in Philly, but um, we actually saw uh, one of the guys from Jim Rose Circus, I think his name was Fuckface or something like that. Hey, and uh. Yeah, yeah, Fuckface, and he had this, like, tattoo of a jigsaw puzzle, like, all, he, oh. his head was shaved, yeah. Oh, I know that guy, that's the Enigma, he lived in Austin for a while. Well, he introduced himself as Fuckface, I swear. Okay, I believe you. We know him in Austin in the 2000s as the Enigma. That's amazing. And actually, yeah, Lifto from the Jim Rose Circus. Was that with the tongue? With the with the um the hanger and the tongue? 
I think so. He was famous for like lift. He had like every part of his body was pierced. He would use the yep. piercings to lift objects. Yep. He was I referenced in an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer says like, that man lifted a paint can with his wiener. That guy. <laughs> oh my god. Oh guy. So you um, time and see the Jim Rose Circus and Nine Inch Nails and and Marilyn Manson. Oh well, no, no, no. I just remember I, w- I was saying like about like because you had this like religious experience with Avi Garza that. Uh, the Enigma, we can call him that, said to us, do you want to see my big blue banana? And we're all like, no, that's quite all right. That's fine. He's like, you want to see it? And I was like, we don't. It's it's fine. And he just lifted up his shirt and there was a tattoo of a banana there. And that was it. So that was not anywhere near uh, like yours, but the only thing I have that that is close to being relevant to your story. <laughs> that's all I got. That's what I got. That's, the rest, you know, that's great. And life, life's not over, Dana. You could have a completely <laughs> religious, sexual, spiritual, musical experience tomorrow, for all we know. I'm a person who is. Um, more shy about going to live shows and I have the it's like well I would want to see something where we can be sitting down and there's like order I, I like I'm very shy when it comes to stuff like that oh. uh, I don't know if you know what though I think a lot of it is being short uh, and that I, at live shows like I can't see things and people are always in front of me and I get knocked around a lot and I, th- I think a lot of it is that I'm a giantess I'm six feet tall so I wish I, yeah I wish yeah I'm happy with what I got but I wish I had seen, like, I've gone to see Fleetwood Mac a bunch of times, wow. uh, you know, now. But, like, I wish I had seen them in 1976, 77, when they were young and fucked up and there was all this energy and craziness and they didn't resolve their demons. No, I want to see full-on demon on stage. Why would you resolve your demon? I mean, that's sort of their their angst and their interpersonal conflict fueled their music for so long and the whole the public knew about it it was almost like their little circus why not capitalize on that like oh maybe they're gonna have a knockdown drag out on stage after don't stop thinking about tomorrow you know (laughs) and that would have been amazing actually there was a show i think in um australia in 1980 something like that where uh during rhiannon Lindsay just was playing an entirely different song and then uh, he started like flapping around, like mocking Stevie, like getting up and, and mocking her and then just started kicking at her. You know what? That's the show I want to go back to see. Maybe maybe like the roots of reality television are, are Fleetwood Mac. That's really interesting. It's not like the real world. No, it goes back even further to, yeah, well, watching that unfold on stage. Right. Like they are sort of the first ones to sort of fold in their personal lives and demons and fucked up shit into their their art and be really open about it so i've I've had to tell you this too is the the incident where uh i mean all right if you've not read this book Read the book, okay? Like you've had months. If if you if it's gonna okay. spoil it, well then turn the podcast off now. But where she goes back and changes that one moment in her life right. that she knows is what made her life skew the way it has. You know, it's on the flap copy. You can just say it. She goes back and undoes her rape. Okay, there you go. 
yes, when she goes back and undoes her rape at the Mazzy Star show and like the Lena that went back to undo it or to save her younger self then disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'm telling you the story you wrote, but I'm just, cause I'm trying to get to a point, Yeah. but it had me thinking about what point was that in my life that if I hadn't done a certain thing, maybe it would have gone another way. And I got to tell you, like I, um, when I was in seventh grade, I I was getting made fun of uh, by these two boys in lunch every day. They would call me mustache because I had hair on my face. I'm Italian, big deal. I'm Armenian. So, what? Yeah. I'm Armenian. I have hair everywhere. Yep. Whatever. So yeah. that's that's life. That's life. Um, but every day it was like mustache, and it was you know so hilarious, and I hated it. And I was trying all these things like going to a trusted teacher and telling them, or trying to get my friends to like you know be safety in numbers, and nothing was working. And so um, one day uh, for dessert uh, at lunch was chocolate pudding and I didn't eat mine. And then I I borrowed a friend's as well. And then I just went right up to their table and I just dumped both dishes of pudding on both of their heads. Go little Dana. Yeah. And um, I just I'd never done anything like that before. Uh, I certainly wasn't a shy or a quiet kid, really, but I hadn't done anything like that. That was straight up confrontational. And, you know, the 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 cafeteria went silent and then immediately erupted into all this applause and laughter. And it was crazy. And while I got in trouble for it, quote unquote, by the administration, though not my parents, it was one of these things where I wonder those those two kids never talked to me again, ever. And after I did that, a couple of kids tried saying mustache just to see what I would do, but that lasted for a week, and no one fucked with me again. And I wonder, though, and so that went well, and I just wonder, though, if I hadn't stood up for myself in that small moment, how different my life would be now. You might have sustained more bullying. Yeah. And you put an end to that. That is a, that is a heroic story. Like, that's, yeah, what would have happened? You'll never know. That's, I know. I, yeah. but until reading that, uh, I mean, I always like knew that story. I would tell that story at, you know, events and whatever else. And I've told that story for a while, but I never realized how significant it really may have been until reading this book and realizing there could be one key moment that was a turning point that things could either have gone this way or that way. And I'm sure we have moments like that all the time generally, but mm-hmm. I just definitely know it was that one. And that if I hadn't stood up for myself, what I would be like as an adult, would I have pursued the things I have pursued as an adult? I don't know. Well, my my family, uh, we have stories like that. My parents almost didn't meet. My, oh. my dad, uh, well, my mom was his secretary. And she uh, already had a job. And she had registered, this was in 1968, when you, you wanted a secretary job, you would register at the employment agency. And so she had done this, I guess, nine months earlier, and she already had a job. And then out of the blue, uh, she got a call to go interview with Mr. Davio at Bourbon Carpet. And she she didn't need the job. She had one. And he had apparently, there was some sort of miscommunication with the office, the uh, the employment office. And he had already hired or was about to hire somebody. But my mom decided to go to this interview and my dad decided, well, she came all this way. I can't just turn her away. And so my mom interviewed for this job 
and my dad decided to hire her and not this other person who he was about to hire. Um, and my mom said that as she was leaving the, the interview, she remembers walking down the staircase to go outside afterwards. <clears throat> and she said she stopped herself and said to herself, oh, my God, I'm going to marry that man. Wow. And she, he was like her 35 years older than her boss. But I guess she just knew what she knew. Um, and there's other stories, too. My father, well, he'd be 105 if he were still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a, a, an officer in the Navy in World War II. And wow. uh, a, an officer on board his ship in the Pacific decided it would be really funny uh, if he shot the first officer that came down onto the deck. And so that was my dad. Uh, and he stopped on the bottom rung of the ladder to, like, pull his gun or do something. At which point, a bullet whizzed beneath his nose. Whoa! And he smelled the gunpowder. And it was just sort of like, wow, you know, if my dad had hired someone else or taken that extra step on the ladder on, on board the ship during World War II, I wouldn't be here. Oh, so, my God. But here I am. Do you have any moments like that in your own life that you look back and you go, I mean, either, you know, that you wish you could go back and maybe redo or change or ones that you think like that went well and the way it was supposed to go. And what would my life be like now if it didn't? I recently got interviewed by a guy at Vice magazine and he asked me if I could go back in time and undo anything in my past. What would it be? And it was I would go back in time and not meet my abuser the ex-boyfriend who emotionally abused me to the point of psychological ruin um, and who I came, later came to find out did the same to a number of other women. Oh. I was sort of thinking like, wow, if I could go back in time and not meet him, would I? And I'm actually good friends with one of the other victims. And we're, I said, I've mentioned this interview to her. And she's like, but then you wouldn't have met me. I think I read about... I think I read something you wrote about being yeah. friends with her. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. She's now just my friend, Emily, who I hang out with. Um, but our, our origin story is quite shocking and strange. And I don't, I've never had a quite a bond with a, a female friend before, quite like the one I have with her, where I can literally say, she saved my life. <laughs> when yeah. I found out her too, same, same exact thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Best friends forever. Thank you for stopping me from killing myself. every anxious wave uh the character of wayne mm-hmm. who i loved and i loved all of your description of what 980 would be like and the air smelling different and food tasting different and the sky looking different uh, i wanted more of that i love reading people's imaginations of like what that kind of thing <laughs> would be or what pluto is like or just things like that. i lo- i cannot get enough of that stuff um and where did that part of the story. I mean, well, I know that that, you know, is what then makes him go and look for Lena is that he has to find uh, Wayne. But uh, what was it like kind of steering Wayne's journey like and knowing then, did you know right away you weren't going to bring Wayne back to the present? 
I dithered on that one. I was hmm. sort of like, well, he should come back. He's kind of a jerk to his friends if he doesn't come back. Um, but then the origin of that is actually from the book Sex at Dawn, which everybody thinks is like the polyamory, non-monogamy book. But there's actually this, this theory that they, the authors of that book put forth, uh, which is that um, the concept of property didn't exist prior to the advent of agriculture. And agricultural practices were the total game changer for huh. humanity. And that prior prior to agriculture, we were hunters and gatherers who lived in pretty tight-knit packs. And there was no, I mean, everything was shared. All the food, all the resources were shared, including children. Like, there was no real, like, strong urge to identify paternity of a child. Like, they were just children and you raised them. It didn't mm-hmm. matter who who whose bodies they sprung from. Um, but then suddenly there was like ownership of land and uh, you had to s- decide that, you know, I only want my resources to go to my children. And in order to enforce your children actually being your biological children, the whole possessive nature of over women's bodies came to be. And that's where monogamy comes from. So taking oh a step back from that, <laughs> I decided that like, you know, maybe maybe Wayne would be happiest if he was with the hunter-gatherers. <laughs> He's a task guy. Like, he just wants to do his job and make people happy by showing that he could do his job well. Um, and he wasn't really getting that in modern life, and other things were really upsetting him. So now he lives in a hunter-gatherer society. He helps the hunting and the gathering and he builds things and he does his job. He has his very well-defined role in society and he does it and he does it well. And that's what he needs to be happy. Yeah. Um, and so that's where that idea, I mean, there's nothing, there's no recorded history of North America in the year 980. Oh no, I know. I just, I love people's imaginations on things like that. I love that. And how do you think music would have been different if someone like Wayne was able to go back and stop John Lennon from being shot? Oh, I think, yeah, things would have been different, I think. I think that the 80s might have been, I can't really put my finger on exactly how, like, I'm not like, if John Lennon had lived, music would sound like this. I don't know. Maybe. I think a lot of, when I think of the 80s and I think of, or, or so like if we're just looking at music that immediately followed, John Lennon's death, you know, so the 80s and that decade. It was a lot of excess. It was a lot of big, uh, over the top, you know, from uh, overproduction or not even. I, I always hate overproduction because it's just like, I don't know, that's you're making a sound. Uh, and if that one is more heavily produced than this one, fine. They're two different kinds of sounds. But the more heavily produced new wave or pop and then you know, things like hair metal uh, that were so big and so over the top. And I and how much of that, I wonder, is just like not overcompensating, but uh, making us making ourselves feel better about something like John Lennon's death. Maybe not directly, but that kind of butterfly effect. Right. It's so weird. And, you know, we're all so eager to, like, assign so much more value to John Lennon and the Beatles and all that when, like, you know, the dudes from, like, Striper or Def Leppard or whatever, like, <laughs> are just going to get left behind in the dust. Um, <laughs> not that I, I'm not saying I agree with that. I don't know what I'm saying anymore, Dana. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> Come back. Come back. Don't go to 980. 
happened if John Lennon had lived. Did you watch 120 minutes in the late 80s on MTV? Uh was that that was on really late at night sometimes. Sundays midnight to 2 a.m. I would pretend to go to bed and then get up at midnight and creep downstairs and turn it on really quietly so my mom wouldn't wake up. Nice. I didn't want to miss 120 minutes. So in the beginning it was hosted by a British man named Dave Kendall and the the main or overarching theme or sort of nexus of music on 120 minutes at the time was from the UK. So there was a lot of like The Cure, The Smiths, Echo and the Bunnymen, yep. that whole thing. So as you enter into, as we entered into the 90s, there was a sea change with, with the advent of grunge, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, etc. Right. Suddenly Dave Kendall is out of there and there's a tubby white dude who's American. Oh, yeah. And that sort of put an end to, like, the sort of British influence. Like, I mean, they, the only thing is that Robin Hitchcock come on and guest, guest host the show. Like, those were good old days. And suddenly it's all very American. And- In the 90s, that did. That switched over. And then that when Matt Pinfield took over 120 minutes, 120 minutes became more of an American style and sound to it. Yeah. I probably started watching 120 minutes in the 90s, though. So if from what I remember, because I oh, my God, I have this very distinct memory of the first time I heard PJ Harvey's uh, Down by the Water being on 120 minutes. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. remember that being on 120 minutes, too. Little fish, big fish. swimming. <laughs> Come back here, man. Bring me my daughter. Uh, but yeah, so I remember that, but then it would have. It would have been Matt Pinfield. So I don't know that I have any frame of reference for the late 80s one. Because in the late 80s, I still would have been like listening to way more pop. Like I wasn't necessarily, not yet, trying to distinguish myself as like, well, I listen to different things. I didn't go through that yet for me. I was very hard. I was from the age of 11. I was a, a big like alternative music college radio kid. That's amazing. I wish I had been that cool. <laughs> I don't know how I... I it was Sassy Magazine, and then I found KFSR, which was the Fresno State radio station, just by switching around. And I was like, what? What is this? I can call the DJs and ask for oh. what What? I was calling DJs and asking them for, like, Joe Jackson stepping out. Oh, I was all like, hey, will you play They Might Be Giants? Yeah, that was my big thing in, like, junior high. Like I knew all these obscure bands and like fire, you know, that was a pretty rough time for me. Like I had every other account against me in terms of like anyone wanting to like talk to my face at school. Like, nah, and I was all like, Hey guys, I have these really cool bands. <laughs> but then like history has proven that now I'm the cool one. And because yep. of Facebook, I know that, you know, they're kind of not. So <laughs> <laughs> Facebook is, the, that's the great gift it gives us uh, is like that we see who's not cool now. Sing bass. Daddy sing bass. Daddy sing bass. There was an inner there was a review of the book, I think NPR did this one, that basically was saying that 
there's music nerdery in there, and you are talking about obscure bands, but what you manage to do is do that in a fun way, and that pokes fun at itself, and not in a way where it's just like, we're in this club of people who know what this band is, and if you, the reader, don't know it, well, then you don't belong. Oh, like, no. that doesn't come across at all, and it's I would, amazing. I think I would have sold the book if it had been like that. I mean, my editor, Brenda Copeland at St. Martin's Press, is not an indie chick by any stretch of the imagination, and neither is my agent. And so, you know, we talked a lot going through this process about, like, well, I've mentioned all these bands, some obscure, some not. Will the reader, is there enough in this book for the reader to hold on to and to keep them you know, heavily vested without knowing all these bands or being made to feel like they're out of the loop? And the answer was no. And, and what I hear from readers and from reviewers who, I mean, NPR, the guy that did the NPR thing, he wrote for Pitchfork. So he's a member of the tribe. But I mean, he did, he did identify that. But, you know. but I agreed with him. Yeah. I didn't, I see, I didn't feel that way. I felt that you really, you were talking about these bands that were obscure because they were bands probably that you as the author knew and loved. Nothing wrong with that. And you weren't, I think it would have hurt it to include those bands and then explain them uh, or like, you know, tried to make it so accessible to everybody that it stayed true to itself, but while still at the same time not excluding anybody and that it wasn't a tone of just like, if you don't know about this, you're stupid. There was none of that. I would never, I would, I wouldn't want to even read that book. Like, no. I wouldn't want to read that book either, but I certainly do spend time in record stores with dudes explaining music to their girlfriends who would read that book. A raspberry that. Yeah. No, that, that happens a lot. Um, that's what I saw somebody call this. I don't. This wasn't in the NPR piece. I, I think I saw this somewhere else that somebody was like, it's like high fidelity, but with time travel. And I was like, nope, that's bullshit. Because if there's one thing I didn't like, it was high fidelity. And here's why. <laughs> and here's the part of the interview where I just shower you with my opinions. Here's okay. why I did not like high, high fidelity was complete crap because that movie was all about what, what, as what I see watching it is um, a man wrapping himself in a cloak of music that only he knows and he understands. And there are no women in that movie except to be the people who drive him to wrap himself in that cloak. So other dudes, like those like sycophantic yep. guys that work in the, in the record store with him? Yeah. And yeah. it just pissed me off because I was like, there are women with this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of, of music. Where are they? That's why I was so excited, too, to read a book like this where you had that kind of knowledge and you displayed it proudly and you didn't try to make it like so that everybody, you know, you it wasn't about like everybody wanting to go back and see the same Nirvana concert or something like that, something that everybody would be able to relate to. You wrote something where the people who are going to get it are really going to get it and they're really going to love it and who doesn't get it, whatever. Right. You know, now I think about it, there's been very few occasions in my life where, like, men have met me where I lived in terms of, like, music knowledge. The only person I can think of in recent memory is my friend Joe Gross, who works for the Austin American Statesman, who interviewed me for the book back in January. And we had this very indie rock nerdy conversation around the book in the interview. But just, like, socially or, like, dating, like, meh. They didn't, men don't assume that I know those things, and if I, they do, like, they, it's not, I don't know, it just doesn't come up. Do you think that they know those things and they just think you don't? 
a long time ago when I first moved to Austin, my friend Brendan would take me to the guitar store to buy strings or whatnot for my guitar back then. Uh-huh. And we would walk in the store, and of course the guys working at the store would talk to Brendan, but not me. And then, Ew. We, and then we would walk out, and I'd be like, "Yeah, being a you're ignoring me like I'm a girl in a guitar store." <laughs> and he'd be like, "Yeah." I go with a friend of mine, my friend Daniel. We go record shopping at this place here called The Thing. It's not even a, it's not really a record store. It's just this kind of thrift store junk shop thing. But the the basement is all records. I mean, you'll you'd never get through all of them. It's just wall to wall to wall to wall to wall records. The first time I saw it, I was like, I wonder how I died. It was cra- like I was in heaven. So um, we went the first time we went, uh, you know, we, and we've got our stacks of records and everything. And, we, and they're like two dollars each, two dollars each for uh, uh, 33s and like. 50 cents for 45s it's amazing so we have these stacks of records and we're going up to pay for them and i'm it's like me in line and then daniel's behind me and the guy just goes right to daniel and is like can i help you and i was like so do i just walk out of here with these records is this like i pay not my money's no good here oh i i didn't think you were buying anything i was like and why would that be is it because of my vagina it's because of your vagina yeah. Your giant cower- towering <laughs> vagina. I know. Swallowing all of the That's records. So funny. The op- oh, the, the, the opposite of this. Yesterday, this happened. I accompanied my sweetie Vince to the shoe store to buy shoes. He was buying shoes. I was not buying shoes. And the guy helping him was explaining to me how to clean them. I'm like, I'm not cleaning his shoes. Ew. What the hell? What the oh, hell? God. And that, is this he, biblical times? Maybe Vince is way younger than me, so I'm wondering. I, we walked down. I'm like, oh my god, do you think? Do you think he thought I was your mom? Oh my! Oh my god! No! <laughs> <laughs> Shopping while female. Um, yeah, <laughs> especially when music related too is right. Yeah, one thing I had just a curiosity about about the book uh, that I love being able to just ask the author: the Axis. Yes. Is that based on any real band or a combination of a couple of bands or people that you knew or in my mind the axis looks like and sounds like the band the makeup (gasps) former sassiest boy in america ian svanonius oh my god milo i am now going to go back and listen to the makeup and think about this book yeah and think about milo milo is based on ian svanonius i remember I, I was uh, one of the station heads of the radio station at Smith College during my time at Smith. Mm-hmm. And we hosted the makeup doing a show at Smith. And we had it illegally. We did not approve, get college approval of the space, which was a dorm basement. And I remember Ian climbed up on this like water pipe on the ceiling and was hanging from it. And I was station manager. I was like, oh shit. If he breaks that pipe and water flies everywhere, it's my ass in deep dookie. Because <laughs> this is like an illegal show and I did not register it. So we were not covered by any college insurance policy. Oh, my God. But he did not break that that pipe. Uh, this was all I could do. Just be like, no, please. Please get down. No. I believe One song. Well, Yaya by Art Garfunkel, which is mentioned in the book. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because oh. actually when I read that, I thought, like, Woyeho, which was Edie Brickell, and then I was like, no, that's that's different. But go on, yes. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah is... Uh... It's it's in the book. It's in the scene where they go back in time and see uh, Lena's mother uh, at the school. Yes. The children are singing Woyaya. The lyrics were originally in it, but we took it out because we didn't want to pay royalties. The album Angel Claire, I just want to, like, I don't really have a, like, a personal story around this. I just want to bring awareness of the weirdness that is Angel Claire. Okay. Garfunkel, which is, it was the first solo album he put out after the demise of Simon and Garfunkel. And so I'm thinking he was aiming pretty high. And so this album, he didn't write most of it. It's mostly cover songs, but he covers the strangest things like murder ballads. I like Art Garfunkel, but I don't know. He's the kind of guy that you want like singing about like, so I murdered that dear little girl. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then he sings Woyaya, which was a cover of a song by an Afro-Caribbean pop group called Osibisa. Mm-hmm. Um, so technically, he beat Simon to the whole African influence music thing by about 13 years. But nobody cared. But nobody cared, because that is the weirdest freaking album. And it's also this like sweet little song. We are going, heaven knows where we are going. We'll know we're there. We will get there. It will be hard, we know. The road will be muddy and rough, but we'll get there. But like, he's kind of this pushy, pampered dude. So it's like... <laughs> Listening to it now doesn't really, the, the, the earnestness doesn't really land. But in my head, it kind of does because I remember listening to that song on repeat in my mother's car when I was a little girl. Is that why that went into the part of the book where they go back and visit her mother? Right. She had all of Art Garfunkel's solo albums on vinyl. Wow. Yeah. Mom was cool like that. Anyway, Mo Davio, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Dana Rossi. You're great. Oh, you're great. And if you haven't read Every Anxious Wave, what the hell is wrong with you? Read it. It has everything. It has music. It has time travel. It has woyaya. Woyaya. This has been the Soundtrack Series. Thanks for listening. <laughs>